Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Roth, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Risha, welcome to the show. Thanks, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Likewise, how is your week going so far? Yeah, so far, pretty good. For me, it's uh, it's Wednesday at noon, just given when and where we're recording. And so I've had a really strong start to the week. And, you know, par- part of that actually, interestingly, was because uh, over the weekend, uh, it was raining here in SF. And so I just chose to stay inside and drink tea all day on Saturday while it was raining outside. It sounds like a very zen-like weekend. What are your thoughts on just completely unwinding and forgetting about work once in a while? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I uh, When I got in on Monday, I actually, <laughs> I actually came in kind of unhappy about the fact that I took the day off on Saturday because I realized there's this deal that we're working on right now. And so... Uh, I turned to my co-founder and I was like, oh my God, I didn't review the the docs for, for the deal. And now I'm going to have to cram it tonight. And he was just like, yeah, dude, don't worry about it. You're being too hard on yourself. You Every now and again, you do need to take some time off. And so, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think a lot of founders don't take, yeah, don't take the time to just like actually unplug and do nothing because there's like so many, so many demands on our time and all these things. And uh, but yeah, it was it was great to do nothing <laughs> for a day. It's a topic I've been covering in previous episodes, actually, you know, founder burnout, founder stress. So I don't know if there's anything else that you recommend seeing as though we're on this topic. Yeah, generally for this sort of topic, I hesitate to give advice. The only thing that I think I can share is what do I happen to do for me? Because something like burnout is so personal psychology dependent that it's really hard to know what's going to work for somebody else. So uh, just to give an example, when I go on vacation, I would be way more stressed if I did not check my email. Whereas some other people, when they go on vacation, they want to not check their email, like all these, you know, they want to like truly unplug. And I know myself well enough to know that if I truly unplugged, it would actually be worse for my psychology, right? I'm actually in the camp of people where I can read my email when I'm on vacation and not reply. So like, I don't feel the compulsion to work. I just want to know what's happening and do nothing. And then when I get back to the office, then I can go in and sort of figure out what to do next. But yeah, generally speaking, when thinking about things like burnout, I think <laughs> I think like step one is just be honest about your psychology and don't assume other people's strategies will work for you. That said, for me personally, what happens to work is just go to sleep on time. <laughs> so like the number one thing that works for me is, you know, it's 930. I'm going to go to bed. I love the simplicity of that as well. It doesn't always have to be rocket science. Yeah, totally, totally. I think that that... And drink, yeah. and drink tea in your case. So I think 
this is maybe a good time to kind of introduce yourself and just share a little bit about your background and what you're up to these days. Sure. Yeah. So I'm currently the founder of a company called Fermat. We're a distributed commerce platform. So what that means is we help brands directly embed shopping experiences inside of content. And we started the company roughly a year ago. We're very fortunate that we are now sort of in one of our inflection moments. So we're seeing a very dramatic increase in usage uh, of our platform and growing very rapidly. So, you know, what is often stereotypically from the outside perceived as like, okay, you have your hockey stick moment or you really have your product market fit moment. Prior to this, just a little bit of background about me personally, I was the head of innovation at a company called LiveRamp. It's a publicly traded ad tech company. And so I helped build three new businesses there. And then before that, I actually was a solid state physicist. So I got my, <laughs> I got my PhD in solid state physics uh, before switching to the world of business. And so yeah, that's that's sort of the quick background on me. Uh, and I think the way I think about, you know, what are we trying to do with Fermat is we're just trying to help participate in what we think is the obvious next evolution for commerce. So, you know, e-commerce started with Amazon, which is there is a destination once you are online where you should shop. So aggregation, basically. So everybody aggregates to one place. You buy from there. The second evolution of e-commerce was redirect. So Facebook got your eyeballs. And then from Facebook, you redirected to a D2C website like Shopify hosted websites. So it's sort of eyeball and interest aggregation and then redirect. And so you saw the, you know, the meteoric rise of Shopify. 2010 to 2020. And then I think 2020 to 2030 is going to be characterized by shopping directly in context. So I'm watching a video somewhere or I'm, I'm following an influencer and how do I purchase in that moment or in that context? And I think one is there's a cultural reason why that's going to become the next big wave, but there's actually a technological reason, which is we now have the API infrastructure to make this happen. And more importantly, the privacy climate in e-commerce has shifted so dramatically that basically, actually literally yesterday <laughs> in Europe, there is a potential ruling where they will say to Facebook, hey, you cannot do like targeted ads based on your first party data. Right now, this is this would be like a dramatic thing, but it's starting to indicate, hey, the old way of doing e-commerce is no longer going to work. And so we're going to see this new wave of e-commerce get ushered in in the 2030s. So, yeah, that's that's just a little bit about about me, what we're working on now and sort of what motivates us to work on this problem. I appreciate you sharing all that. It's really interesting. And I'm curious before we dive into today's episode, which is reverse engineering, the traction that you've now got, I had a few follow-up questions. And 
One of them is, do you see this as just the initial go-to-market being e-commerce? Like, why couldn't you open this up to more higher ticket items? Is that something that you see <laughs> yourself expanding to, or are you just really hyper-focused on e-commerce? Yeah, uh, this is a great question. I, <laughs> You know, it's funny you ask me, because this is now the third time in a week that I've been asked this question. Uh the other two times were from people who wanted to be customers in a B2B SaaS context. But I think that this is exactly one of the things that we want to work on once we have our initial wedge, you know, clearly working. I think that the benefit of working in e-commerce is your iteration speed can be very fast. And I think we, you know, I would love to sort of dive into a little bit more on that dimension, but when, when, when we started the company, the way that we thought about what is the right entry point is step one, where is the most pain going to be experienced first? And then step two, where can we most quickly iterate on a solution, right? And so the reason to choose e-commerce and to choose content e-commerce is because we knew that with this privacy change, the amount of pain that e-commerce businesses was going to face was going to be dramatic. And I mean, unfortunately, that was true, where, you know, Facebook's earnings went down by $10 billion over the course of the year. And all of that money is money that SMB advertisers are not able to effectively use for customer acquisition, right? And so you saw incredible drops in stock valuation for D2C e-commerce companies. And then you also, I mean, we see, unfortunately, a lot of small and medium-sized e-commerce companies are struggling to even make the unit economics work with this new ecosystem. And so I think that's why we chose e-commerce first, but absolutely the vision of the company is for the internet in general, how do we enable distributed interactions? And and how do we enable them in a way in which allows for that direct and distributed interaction to happen? So yeah, I love the question and, and that's definitely in the vision. Definitely. Well, I'm excited to get into the meat of today's episode, which is digging into your process and unpacking and walking us through each step that led to the traction that you're getting now. You mentioned five of them offline. Talk to me a little bit about what you said in terms of number one being the product must do what it's supposed to do. That sounds really straightforward and oversimplified, but I'm sure you had a reason for listing it as number one. Yeah. So actually, this is a really good segue from what we were just talking about around why did we start with e-commerce, right? And I answered the question by saying, hey, it's a space where you can iterate very fast. So when I say the product, <laughs> the product must do what it's supposed to do is most founders start with a hypothesis of if I enable X, I can generate Y outcome. So for example, it's like, if you're starting Coinbase, it's like, hey, if I enable people to easily buy Bitcoin, they will buy Bitcoin, 
right? Like that's that's like the actual entire business hypothesis, right? Of of Coinbase when it started. I, I'm I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but not not too much. Or you know the initial hypothesis of Airbnb is if we enable people to rent out their rooms, other people will want to stay there during events where it is impossible to book a hotel room. So, you know, Dreamforce in San Francisco. I don't know if you've ever tried to come to Dreamforce in San Francisco, but you literally cannot find a hotel room. It's not like it's expensive. Like you can't, like they're just booked out, right? And so in that event, people will stay in people's rooms, right? That's the hypothesis statement. And so step one, and this, I mean, this sounds naive, but step one is just, does the product actually do that thing? So so if I present you something that enables you to rent out your room, will somebody come and actually rent that room? Right, That's, that's actually step one. Is that's all you're trying to prove. Does the product do what it's supposed to do? If I build this portal, will a customer actually buy Bitcoin through this portal? Because it's now easier than going to Mount Gox, right? Or if I build this meeting booking tool, is it more likely that somebody will book a meeting, right? So now, now this one starts to become a little bit more nuanced and is actually probably the more relevant example for more founders is this meeting booking example where, you know, let's just say you're starting Calendly. If I make it easy for you to find times that I'm open, are you more likely to book a meeting with me? Because actually the job to do is to make it more likely that the person will book a meeting with you, right? And so you now have to actually measure somehow, hey, when I do this thing, is it the case that meetings get booked faster and more, and a meeting gets booked more often than it otherwise would have been? And so like that's the initial thing that you need to do. And to do that, your iteration velocity has to be extraordinarily high, right? So the problem statement in abstraction sounds very simple, right? Okay. If I make it possible for you to see all the open windows, that means it's like, oh, great, it's easy for me. Now there's no back and forth. I'm more likely to actually book the meeting. But the problem is that you don't know what form factor that needs to take in order for that statement to become true. And so the only tool that you have available to you to getting that <laughs> to getting that to be correct is like you you have to iterate on the solution very, very quickly. So, you know, you try to get somebody to use your tool and it does not increase the likelihood that they book a meeting with you. And now, so let's just say it's like when you just gave them times over email, let's say 70% of people would end up booking a meeting. Now that they use your tool, it's more like 50%. And you're like, oh shit, this doesn't work. (laughs) And so then you're like, okay, why does it not work? Is it because people don't even click the link, right? Am I measuring whether or not the link is being clicked? Do they click the link, but then they land on the page and they are not picking a time? If they're landing on a page and not picking a time, why are they not picking a time? Is the time easy to understand? Is it the case that they need to now go back and forth between this person's calendar and their calendar, right? And what are the sets of things that I can do to make it 
easy wherever the bottleneck is and then put out the next version where I solve that bottleneck and then I find the next bottleneck and I keep doing this very, very quickly until the product actually does what it's supposed to do. So that's what I mean by like this. Yeah, you're right. It sounds highly simplistic, like the product must do what it's supposed to do. But actually, it's describing you have to do the work and it is a grind to getting to the point because there's like the product doesn't work until it does. Right. So like, let's just say you're this meeting booking example, like most people over email at 70 percent. It's under 70 percent until the day that it's over 70 percent. Right. And then now all of a sudden it's 71 percent and you go to your next customer and you say, hey, this makes it more likely somebody will book a meeting with you. And by the way, now you don't also have to spend the time copying and pasting the times that you're available as an added bonus, right? And so it's like, okay, now the product works. The product does what it's supposed to do, right? Or you go to the next host on Airbnb and you say, hey, if you put your room on Airbnb, people will actually pay you to come and stay in your room, right? Like, it wasn't true until it was true. And, and it's like, that's, the, that's what I mean by the product actually has to do what it's supposed to do. Which, by the way, you're still nowhere close to achieving product market fit at this point. <laughs> All you've done is step one, which is actually get the product to do the thing. Just to quickly wrap up this section, do you have products that you feel did what they needed to do, but like at an MVP level and they kind of stated that sort of MVP level for many years. So my example would be Evernote. I feel like for, I don't know, 10 years old company maybe, but it hasn't really moved the needle since it came out. And then, and now you see all these competitors killing it like Notion and Airtable and a few others. I, yeah, I think the way I think about that, and you tell me if this is fair or not fair, is I think that certain software products, they release and there is a particular thing that it's supposed to do, given what's true about the world at that point in time. But then actually the world changes uh, and they do not change, <laughs> right? So it's like, you know, with Quibi, it's like, the pandemic happened and they had no good way to pivot their business in order to find the right thing for the product to do. Uh, and so I would say that like the, I, I, you know, like Notion, the thing that Notion does is not, I mean, it's not a document editor. It's a, like, it is amazing at document connectivity. So a block of text that lives in one page actually live can live in multiple pages. And so you edit it in one place and then it auto edits in all the other places where it lives. And so like what the product is supposed to do is single source of truth. That's what Notion is supposed to do. And they solved it. Again, this is an, by the way, Notion, Notion is a great example of it did not work until it did. Because actually the first three years of Notion, it was a nothing company, right? So like I have several friends 
who knew the founder of Notion back when he said like, oh yeah, I'm going to build a new document company. And he had no idea what the company was going to do. Now, like the story that they tell now might actually be different, but like reality is that it was not working until it was. And it was because like their, their thinking was, okay, I need to make it easy to create a single source of truth. And then they iterated over and over and over and over and over again until they were like, wait a second. The thing that people point to over and over again is that a block of text, when I update it here, I need to remember to update it on all of the other pages, right? And that's extremely annoying. And I will never remember all of the other pages that it's on. And so by definition, my knowledge base is going to be outdated. And Notion was like, why don't I make the block of text on the back end pull from the same source? And so you can copy blocks, right? And so a notion is like the best example of it was not working until it did work. Then they solved a bunch of other problems and then they got product market fit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe the notion example is more like it didn't work because they didn't have their ideal customer figured out. Like it must have taken time till they got this aha moment that, oh, there's a segment of users here that want this and that segment is big enough to to have a successful product. And maybe that ties into make sure that the customer can measure and articulate the value. So this is a great segue into that. Yeah. So once your product actually does what it's supposed to do, the next four steps are all about the customer. And each of these steps is distinct. And so I'll just like very quickly summarize and then we can dive into number two, just so way we can sort of help like, you know, listeners who are listening just sort of think through, okay, now that I have a product that works, like what, what happened, what's next? So one is make sure they can measure and articulate the value. Then it's make sure they can sign up to use it, uh, sign up for it, sorry, make sure they can sign up for it easily, then make sure they can use it easily, and then make sure they can prove to their stakeholders that it works, right? And each of these steps you have to treat as a funnel, right? And so like, step, you know, step one, we just went over, make sure your product works. And then now the next four steps are with your customer until you're like really in the zone where you get product market fit. So the next one is make sure they can measure and articulate the value. That means for, you know, Let's just take uh, any one of the three examples that we were just talking about. So let's just say it's this meeting booking software, right? Uh, in the meeting booking software's case, can the customer actually articulate, yeah, it is more likely, like, you know, we purposely articulated in this way. It is now more likely that a meeting gets booked with me, right? And I have a way to measure it. So... Like I can know whenever I send a Calendly link that here's how often somebody actually ends up booking time with me, right? And so is there a way to measure it? And, and the reason why it's important to not have this be abstract is because of the, of the steps that follow from here. But you should really spend a lot of time up thinking about your product is there a simple way for the person to measure and articulate the value of your product, right? Uh, so like, 
let's take this document editor example, right? If you're Evernote, I, I, well, actually, I have no idea what Evernote sells on anymore. But if you're Notion, <laughs> right? Like Notion, it is, well, like the thing that everybody says, hey, you should use Notion for is for knowledge management, right? And I basically- to interrupt. I've been following this guy for a couple of years. I think his name's Tiago Forte. He sells courses around these tools, but positioning it as creating a, a second brain. I don't know. I, sometimes your customers can position you if your positioning and value are not crystal clear. But that's another topic, but just thought it was interesting to point out the importance of also making sure that your customer can articulate the value, which is also partially your messaging and positioning. You're, yep, that's exactly right. I think that's actually a very elegant way of putting it is like, make sure you know how it is being positioned in your customer's mind, right? I mean, candidly, nobody cares how you position it yourself. And I think <laughs> right? there's a book it's called like position, the job, position the or be positioned. I think it's a book or maybe it's a quote. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good quote. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if you, if you are unable to if you're unable to get your customer to articulate the value, the way that you believe it should be articulated, you're definitely doing something wrong. So yeah, I, I think this is super important. Um, and I think the notion example, the second brain is a great, I mean, I think that's a sexy like way of saying it, uh, yeah, I would just use the word knowledge management <laughs> because, you know, for me, like some of the sexy language is not as effective, but that's not true for other people. Right. And so the yeah, I, I think I think you need to have a clear way to to have the value be articulated. Um, and for us, like for us, it's similar, right? It's, hey, when you use distributed commerce, it is more likely that the customer will transact. So it's like, I'm, you know, I can very simply tell you what is the thing that you can talk about internally, which is, yeah, you just have to measure your return on ad spend or your conversion. That's it. You know, like very simple. You can then communicate that. I know with certainty that the message can be communicated. Awesome. And uh, you, you want to go into number three, the, the customer should easily be able to sign up for it. So this is like pre-product usage. Yeah. So one of the things I learned with our company early on was the number one question after I told somebody what we do, how we can help, was what is the integration going to look like? So, and this is especially true if you're selling, you know, software to a non-technical department or even to a technical department in the back of their mind <laughs> all they're thinking about is like oh man do i need to go and like talk to my cto or talk to my product person and have them do some work because if that's what i need to do this is never going to happen uh and so it's or, like or you need to what are the sets easy for them to roll it out as possible because some industries it's just part of the nature of deploying technology there's this expectation that it's going to involve a bit of 
heavy lifting or not. Of course, if it doesn't, it's to your advantage. But there are still, I think, many products for sure in the security world. And even in the MarTech world, they're not just plug and play. Like it takes a bit of time and effort and onboarding to get them working. But if you get the value after putting in some effort, perhaps you're willing to accept it. Are you really? Yeah. I, you, I think this is going to be a, okay, I'm actually excited about diving into this. Most security companies I know that have an amazing go-to-market motion have a way to prove, have a way for the customer to sign up for something without doing the integration work. So for example, like there's security companies that'll, you don't have to do anything. They'll do a scan for you. And literally, they will give you a report and say, hey, like, so, you know, we're t this is now step two, which is like, you can measure and articulate the value. So they're giving you a report and they're making it easy for you to sign up because it's like, okay, I have shown you that I can actually do this work for you without anything. Here, this is now the steps to fix it, right? It's like, I am making it easy for you to actually sign up based on a value exchange that I can create without you doing anything, right? And I think that for security, I mean, I think like a lot of my friends are security founders. I actually think that one of the things that they get stuck with, like stuck on is if they don't have that type of tool, it causes massive delay in their product market fit uh, motion. Yeah, super true. And it's actually something weird trying ourselves yeah because you have to make it easy for the person to sign up and so once you can articulate the value then the next is going to be what is the thing that's going to make it easy for the person to sign up and like there's a bunch of you know how do i show the value as quickly as possible to make it easy for them to sign like how do we show that there's going to be value how do i make the contracting as easy as possible because like i mean i think probably the stupidest thing that a startup could do is make their legal agreement complicated in order for a customer to sign up like that that's like if if that's what's causing it a complexity in signing up i mean i hate to say it it's just like don't do that <laughs> you know but there's like a lot of these sort of tactical things it's the, and and i agree with you the the key point is just make it easy to sign up and to, and um, maybe one last point before we wrap this one up you mentioned it's also important to rapidly be able to iterate and get feedback so if you can if you can show versus tell without needing to get a person on a demo each time i think that ties into your point around getting those iterations in faster totally yep i i totally agree with you and then i think once you do that just sort of zooming back out the next two steps are make sure it's easy to use and then make sure once the customer is using it, that they can articulate the value internally to their stakeholders. So now let's pretend like you've gotten them to sign up and onboard. Now they actually have to use your product, right? Like, again, if you're this calendar tool, are they actually se sending out calendar links? If you're a security company, are they actually monitoring their systems? Are they actually looking at your dashboard? Right. So sort of like, are they getting value out of the usage of your tool? Um, and if they cannot easily get usage out of your tool, 
like even though they've signed up, they will 100% churn. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's like you cannot ignore the fact that once they sign up, your job is not done. You know, the next one is like you've got to make sure they use it. Even though the product is working, you already put in the work to get them to sign. I know, I know it feels as a founder like, man, I did the hard work. It's, I got bad news for you. You did not do the hard work. <laughs> the, the hard work starts now, which is you need to make sure that they're using it uh, and that they can easily use it, right? And it fits into, and when I say easily use it, I mean, make sure it fits into their existing workflows. So, you know, if they are used to working out of their inbox, maybe have your tool set it, send out an email. If they're used to looking at dashboards, make sure that there's a dashboard view. If they use a certain type of dashboard and they need the data to flow there, make sure that the data is flowing into the dash that they actually look at on a day-to-day basis. So when you think about like, what does it mean to make it easy to use? It's not just like the UX of my tool is good. That is the wrong way to look at it. What you need to do is put yourself in the shoes of the customer and say, what is their workflow on a day-to-day basis look like? Where do they do their work otherwise? And how do I fit into their existing workflow, right? If instead what you are doing is how do I make my UX look good? It's irrelevant, totally the wrong question. Um, And so that's why that's the fourth point that I think is super important. And I'll just quickly cover the last one too before we dive in a little bit. But once they do that, they not only are getting usage. So again, let's say you're a security company or a calendar company or whatever it is. You want them to then be able to communicate to their stakeholders. So whoever they get budget from, like the CEO, the CMO, the CIO, the CISO, you want for them to be able to say, man, now that I work with company X, look at the value that they are providing to us. Once that happens, now you have product market fit. (laughs) You know, so it's like a lot of people think that product market fit is only step one, which is like, I need a product that works. And I think the reason this discussion is so interesting is actually that's only the first step of having fit it ends with your customer being able to prove to their stakeholders that your product is delivering value to them. And once that communication starts to happen, your product is going to get sucked from you. And that's when you start to see that inflection and sort of we're fortunate that that is one of the things that we're starting to experience. I hope we continue to experience. But, you know, it's like once that communication at step five starts to happen where they're communicating to their stakeholders the value that you are providing, then you are going to feel that pull from the market. I love how simplistic you've made it look and sound. How how did you get to this point? Like, are you continuously documenting your efforts? Yeah, I think it was a massive amount of pain. So, you know, it was like I had to painfully live through that feeling of all I need is my product to work. And then I learned, actually, that's not the thing that matters. Like, now that you have gotten your product to work, you need to make sure that you can actually communicate the value. And it's like, okay, (laughs) now now let me like work on the next thing. But I think the one thing that I am reasonably good at is understanding what is the the next most important step. So instead of, I mean, I know what the end destination is, of course. 
But in a, I think great founders, what they are good at is given what my end destination is, what is the next most important step? So I'm, here's my macro problem. Given my macro problem, what is the single thing that if I can make progress on is more, is, instead of worrying about the 10 steps, like what is the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. And, and making sure once you conquer that one next thing, you scan and you make sure you take stock of what is actually, so your pathfinding as you are going and your pathfinding quickly. And then once you do that pathfinding, you can look back on it and say, hey, here is what I actually ended up doing. Now in the moment, I mean, I wish somebody told me this like six months ago, you know, but I, I did not have this like architecture in my mind. I just had to like pathfind at every point what is the next most important thing to making sure that my product is delivering a lot of value to customers, right? And it's like, and, and they agree with that, right? <laughs> like, like, not only am I delivering value to them, they are saying to me that you are delivering a lot of value to me, right? Like, I knew that that was the end point and I just didn't know, like, what is the pathfinding to get there? I think you, you, if you haven't, you should definitely read a book called Scaling Up because it speaks a lot about this, finding the one thing that you focus on that has the biggest impact. His name is Vern Harsh. And yeah, for anybody listening, I, I wish you the best. It's a, unfortunately, I think I saw a report earlier today where somebody ran a survey and they said 85% of companies have less than 12 months of runway right now. Uh, because there hasn't been a lot of follow-on raising that has happened over the last eight months. So yeah, I, I, like you, I wish the best to all the other founders who are, who are listening out there. It's a, it's a hard job, but it's a very fulfilling job. So, uh, you know, I'm excited for you and, and wish you all the best. And hopefully, uh, some of what I learned was helpful in your journey. Really appreciate it. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think that this was a really solid discussion. Awesome. Well, it was an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much again for, for joining us today on the Founder Pack. If anybody would like to pick your brain, connect with you, where's the best place to, to reach out? Yeah, I would say the two best places are... I'm. My handle is Rishabh M. Jain on both Twitter and LinkedIn, and I'm pretty active on both. So maybe one last question. How are you finding Twitter since the takeover? I don't know. I'm more entertained. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the reason you go onto TikTok is for entertainment. The reason you go on Instagram is for entertainment. And right now, Twitter is the most entertaining of platforms. And so, you know, I, I think everything else, it is like too little time to understand what is the impact of, but in the short term, it is definitely the game. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Rishab. Looking forward to having you back in the future. Yeah. All right. Thank you for having me. See everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Roth, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. 
If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.